Please turn with me in the Word to Mark chapter 11, uh, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through to 25. Finishing with, uh, as Peter suggested, the lessons from the withered fig tree. But we'll begin at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses.
Our text this morning is verses 12 through 14, the event of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then we pick up in verse 20 again, and we deal with Jesus' interpretation of his cursing of the fig tree. We began with chapter 11, verse 1, uh, last time, uh, just before Good Friday, we, we looked at the first 11 verses here. But we need to note that in chapter 11, verse 1, it's like Mark hits the slow motion button as he's writing. From chapters 1 through 10, he's covered three years of Jesus' ministry. From chapters 11 through 15, he's going to cover one week of Jesus' ministry. And so the pace of Mark is going to slow right down as he deals with with some of the features of what it means that Christ has come in this time of Passover, and he's come as the Passover lamb to take away the sin of the world. Now we read through uh, the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, and Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And this reflects uh, distinct times that correspond to Christ's anointing as prophet, priest, and king. He came in his kingly office with the triumphal entry to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. He came as a king riding on a donkey, coming to fulfill and to conquer sin, Satan, and death. He came to his temple. He also cleansed the temple. And in the cleansing of the temple, we see his priestly role that he was there to to offer a sacrifice, to be the sacrifice, but also to restore the worship of God and restore it not only with the Jews, but throughout the world, throughout the nations. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so in his priestly intercession, it's a reflection that it's, it's not narrowed down only to the Jews, but also to all of the nations. Well, this morning we consider the cursing of the fig tree. And with the cursing of the fig tree, we hear Jesus' prophetic ministry. And a prophet is a prophet who is a man who who proclaims God's word. And God's word here, spoken by Jesus, it's that word in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It brings a certain curse. This is a unique miracle. Typically, we think of miracles as positive ways in which Jesus restores what has been lost in creation. He does that. He heals the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. He makes the lame to walk, and so on and so forth. But here, this is a unique miracle because it expresses judgment. It shows the power of Jesus' word to destroy this tree, to destroy it from the roots overnight. This portion of God's word has given a lot of people difficulty. A lot of commentators struggle with Jesus. They regard what he is doing to be a bit extreme. It identifies that he's hungry, 
And he looks at this fig tree and he wants food from the fig tree and it's not the season of figs. And in response to his anger, he loses a bit of control and he just lashes out and destroys this tree because he's angry. He seems out of control. But we need to remember that this is Jesus. And while he may seem out of control, this is not a flare of self-service, that all of a sudden he's overcome with hunger. Remember, this is Jesus who 40 days in the wilderness faced the temptation of Satan to change stone into bread and resisted because he wasn't going to use his power to serve himself. Nothing has changed with Jesus. He hasn't lost control. This isn't an outbreak of being hangry. I don't know if you have children who get hangry. They, they get angry when they're hungry. We have one child who, if we don't feed them on time, we incur their wrath, and we recognize that, and so we want them fed. I use them because it could be a boy, could be a girl, and you'll never know. So... Jesus isn't hangry. This is an object lesson, a warning, a lesson for us from a cursed fig tree. He gives commentary on it, and we consider Jesus' event and his interpretation. His interpretation comes in verse 20. As they passed in the morning, another day has passed. Jesus cursed the fig tree the first morning, the second morning. It's dead, thoroughly dead. There's no green. It's rotted. It's, it's collapsed from the roots up. So what are these lessons? There's three lessons that I think God's Word is showing to us here this morning. First of all, the need for fruit. Secondly, the need for faith. And thirdly, the need for forgiveness. The need for fruit, faith, and forgiveness. First of all, the need for fruit. Jesus had entered Jerusalem, and he'd come riding on a donkey, riding as a king, and he left Jerusalem. He surveyed the territory and went back to Bethany. That's where our text is beginning. He went back to Bethany, and he spent the night in Bethany after the triumphal entry. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. It's possible he stayed with them. It's possible he didn't stay with other friends. We don't know where he stayed. But the next morning, after a, a night's sleep in Bethany, he wakes up and he's on his way out back to Jerusalem. He's now going to cleanse the temple in his high priestly capacity. But on the way out, he's hungry. We don't know why he's hungry. We don't know the circumstances. The text doesn't tell us, and we can speculate for eons. The point is, is that he's hungry. And he approaches this fig tree and finds only leaves. First of all, that he is hungry reminds us that this is a true man. He's a man who gets tired and needs to sleep through the night. He's a man who gets hungry when he hasn't eaten at an appropriate time. He's the man who has come to secure our salvation. He got tired. He got sick. He was truly a man. And then he approaches this fig tree and he finds no figs. Now we need to recognize the character of fig trees and a lot has been written about this and what is happening. There's, there's generally regarded that there's two yields of fruit, 
two times of the year in which a fig tree bears fruit. There's the main harvest, which happens later in the year. That's what's regarded as the fig season. That's when the true big figs are finally ripe and they can be eaten. But there's a first yield of fruits. That latter season is the second yield of fruits. The first yield are the small fruits. They come out just before the leaves appear after winter. And they're small fruits, and they're a bit of a delicacy. They're, they're not that prominent so that everybody can eat them as, as they normally would. But they're just there, when, just before the leaves come. And this would correspond well with the timing of our text. It's the month of March or April, also the time of Passover, when Israel would celebrate the Passover. So Jesus approaches this fig tree, and it has leaves. It's full of leaves, so you would expect that some of those small first-yield fruits would have been there and would have been ripened sufficiently that they could eat. But this fig tree has no fruit. Well, that's the extent of what we're going to go into, because when we hear this word of God, this is not a lesson in gardening Jesus isn't dealing with a tree that's unproductive. He's using it rather as an object lesson about the spiritual life of Israel. This is a spiritual lesson. That's what this fig tree represents. And it's very common in Scripture that God refers to Israel as his vine, which should be productive of grapes, or a fig tree, which should be productive of figs. And for three years, Jesus has been teaching and preaching, performing miracles and fulfilling prophecies. But Israel has not come to believe in him. They don't bear fruit. And Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, he's gone into the temple, he's seen what transpires there, he knows what awaits him in the cross, he's taught his disciples three times that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the leaders, to die and to be raised again. He knows what awaits. And this is a miracle of judgment. And imagine the sorrow and the suffering of Jesus as he travels. And it wouldn't have been him alone who was traveling, but everyone who lived a distance away from Jerusalem was traveling up to Jerusalem. He had traveled with the crowds to Jerusalem so that they could celebrate, and they are anticipating the celebration of the Passover. And yet they don't know him, and they don't believe in him how he had provided for them everything that was necessary for them to believe, for them to be fruitful, to find life 
and redemption. John the Baptist had said it most clearly when Jesus appeared. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they won't come to him spiritually. Instead, they go to Jerusalem because they want that sacrificial lamb that they can offer. They had beautiful leaves as they followed the form of religion, as they fulfilled the, the, the external character of the sacrifices that God required. But there was no fruit of love in their hearts for the Lord or for the gift of his Messiah. There's a need of fruit. And it's the fruit of faith. A fruit that clings to the Christ. And this is a warning. A warning of judgment. There is certain death for those who do not yield to the call of the gospel of Jesus. For those who will not bow before their king, who will not rejoice in the sacrifice of their priest. There is certain judgment for those who will not heed his gospel call to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. It's an overnight astounding realization of the power of God's Word. It took Peter by surprise. They passed by the next morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter said, Rabbi, teacher, look. What you said was going to happen has most astoundingly happened. God's Word, you see, people of God, God's Word works. It has the power to save. That's the good news of the Gospel, but it also threatens. And the threats have certain consequences. This is Jesus the prophet coming to proclaim a warning. A warning for those who are unfruitful in God's kingdom. Those who are indifferent or cold to the gospel. Lacking in gratitude for His grace, be warned. God is patient. We celebrate that. But He in no way ignores the guilty. And this judgment is certain. Today is the day of salvation. Beware the danger of fruitlessness under the gospel of Jesus Christ.
there is a need for fruit. God is not playing games with you. He summons you to faith in His Son. Secondly, there's also a need for faith. Peter's astounded. Lord, that word worked overnight. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. I find it rather unusual. I think Jesus' interpretation should seem unusual. It just, it doesn't flow, does it? I can understand if, if we were simply to camp out on the warnings, have faith in God, be assured that this judgment is going to come, and he would leave it at that. But, but Jesus takes it in, in a rather unusual direction, doesn't he? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell, tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, he takes it to prayer. What is the relationship with a dead fig tree on the one hand and the need for a faith that prays and the need for prayer? Verse 22 is an important connection. It has to do with our faith. A faith in God. There's a need for faith because of the certainty of judgment, but also because of the need for prayer. And the faith isn't just a belief in God's Word. It's, it's a faith that prays. A particular kind of faith. A praying faith. Prayer is a necessary element of faith in light of, and I think in the context, as a consequence of the certainty of God's judgment. You see, a praying faith is part of our prophetic ministry. Think of examples of prayer in the face of unbelief and judgment. James uses Elijah. Earlier, we could go in Scripture to the Old Testament and we could think of Moses. When God breaks out against Israel because of their disobedience and their unbelief, when He's ready to destroy Israel because of the golden calf, Moses intercedes. He prays. In light of judgment, he prays. Elijah. The example James uses is he prayed earnestly for three years that it wouldn't rain. He prayed about judgment. And then he prayed that it would rain. And it came. He prayed about grace. And James says the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so often we, we take this. We, we have a skewed view in prayer and we say, oh, we just pray about the good things. And we should pray about the good things. We should pray that God's grace would take root. We should pray that God's grace would gr grow fruit. But we also need to pray about God's judgment. Luke 18, which is prior to this event, and it's, it's a different book, but it does happen in Luke's time frame. It happens. It's the parable of the persistent widow. And the persistent widow 
Jesus introduces that parable in this way, that we ought to always pray and not lose heart, and that widow was praying about judgment, that she would receive justice from an unjust judge. And Jesus concludes that when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Not talking about a general belief in him, but a faith that is praying and longing and crying out to God for judgment. That's what Jesus is teaching about. Don't doubt in your heart. He talks about a destructive character to take this mountain and to cast it into the sea. This is a very difficult connection. And I think that's what gives us this, this sense of difficulty with this unusual interpretation that, that Jesus has. Because often we, we approach prayer like a, a blank check and we say, well, whatever we ask of God and we ask in prayer with faith, he will do it for us as if it's, it's just this, this absolute guarantee. If only we don't doubt and it's used so frequently in that context. Well, well is there, a, there an inkling of doubt in your heart that you've asked? It's a problem of your faith. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching at all. And I know some of us have prayed for the salvation of friends, the salvation of family. We've prayed for restored health. And sometimes we begin to doubt and we, we read this text and well, that's the problem. I've got, I've got an inkling of doubt in my heart. And we misuse this text. And there are preachers who misuse this text. And they say, see, you just need more faith if you pray more diligently, if you pray more believingly. If you give it to God, you're sure, you're guaranteed to make it happen. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. We need to keep this in the context. Jesus is teaching that there are matters that we need to pray about that seem impossible. The church's prophetic ministry means we need to confront fruitlessness, unbelief, and disobedience with prayer. With prayer. We need to pray that people would wake up and quit playing with God because the threats of destruction are real and there's no way out. That we would realize the closeness of judgment when our religion becomes fruitless. When we are overwhelmed by the presence and the power of sin, so that prayer, based on God's Word, becomes our first defense. Remember the context? 
Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. The greatest display of God's judgment and the gravest miscarriage of justice. And what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But John tells us as well in John 17, that even before the Garden of Gethsemane, he offered to the Father that high priestly prayer that said, Father, glorify your name with that glory I had before with you. And let that glory work amongst your people. The appeal for faith and prayer is an appeal that will listen to God's Word, that will recognize the danger of, unfruit, of fruitlessness, and will pray, and will pray that in light of the certainty of God's judgment, He will work His grace for His glory. We need that faith. Faith that prays. But thirdly, there's also the need for forgiveness. And Jesus' appeal for bearing fruit alerts us not only to the certainty and the imminence of judgment, but also to the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. Praying for judgment. Praying for judgment requires you to examine your heart and consider the character of your prayer. Are we praying just for a vindication of our honor, of our integrity? of a continuation of our comfortableness, then we won't have a forgiving spirit. Are we praying for the vindication and celebration of God's honor and of God's glory? Then we must pray not only for judgment, but also with a forgiving heart. How does this all fit together? I don't think we're to make it logically compute. I think we're meant to understand it worked out for us, most beautifully portrayed in Jesus' prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Judgment and forgiveness are knit together in the person and work of Christ. Jesus, while undergoing the judgment of hell, of enduring the Father's wrath poured out upon Him, looked upon those who were guilty 
and prayed, forgive them. You see, people of God, forgiveness without Christ at the center, without Christ's accomplishment, without Christ's work, without Christ's word, forgiveness without Christ is as impossible spiritually as it is physically for a mountain to be cast into the sea. Let me say that again. Forgiveness without Christ is as impossible spiritually as it is physically for a mountain to be cast into the sea. Why should you be let off the hook for your sins? Why should anyone be let off of God's judgment for their sin? It is only because of the work of Jesus. Forgiveness without Christ is as impossible spiritually as it is physically for a mountain to be cast into the sea or is as impossible as a fig tree withering overnight. Here's the wonder of why forgiveness is so urgently needed in your hearts. Because it shows the awareness of what Christ has done for you. That you who deserve judgment have received a clean slate, a pure heart, a washed soul. This is the Spirit of Christ that Jesus is revealing, a Spirit in which He, he goes to the cross, a Spirit in which he, he gives this object lesson. And it's a word, it's a word of grace that works. What can make you for, to, be, to have a forgiving heart only when you draw near to realize the wonder of what Christ has done? It's so urgently needed because it shows the awareness of Christ's accomplishment in your place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was placed upon Him. And by His wounds... We are healed. Isn't this amazing? How Christ places himself in the gap and undergoes the judgment that we deserve so that we, whenever you stand praying, as you have a faith that prays for judgment, you would also pray for forgiveness. If you have anything against anyone, pray. And Jesus does this. So do Jesus' disciples. And it's found in the last words of Stephen. As the rocks pummel him and he's stoned because his sermon convicted the Jews about judgment for their mistreatment of Christ. They killed him. And what are his last words recorded? Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. And you see a fig tree that bears fruit. It's the fruit of Christ and the life of His child. With Christ, you can forgive for His sake, not for yours, for His sake. Forgive anyone you have something against. What a way to start the year. To be aware that we haven't escaped judgment just because we've come into 2024. But it might be a year in which we learn to show grace. The grace that Christ has shown to us. If you don't know Christ, if you don't have His fruit in your lives, then you don't know how to pray for judgment, nor do you know how to pursue forgiveness. But if you have Christ, then you will bear fruit. And you must pray for judgment. And just as much as you pray for judgment, you have to pray for forgiveness. Because you have Christ. And that is the hope for those who are under condemnation. People of God, cursing the fig tree is a powerful lesson. Powerful lesson. Do you see the need for fruit? The need for a faith that prays? And the need you have to forgive others? The cursing of the fig tree is a powerful lesson about the presence of Christ that produces the fruit of grace in your life. Let's pray. Let's pray that in light of God's certain and looming judgment for fruitlessness, that He make us fruitful. Fruitful through prayer and forgiveness in our relationship to Christ. Amen.